Welcome to Heroes of Brand Protection Podcast Episode 9. I'm your host, Daniel Shapiro, VP of Brand Relations at Redpoints, the world's fastest growing brand protection solution with a mission to make the internet a safer place for both brands and consumers. In this podcast, we will share stories and industry insights from some of the leading experts in brand protection and anti-counterfeit from many different industries. We are so happy you could join us today. Please check out our episodes on www.redpoints.com forward slash podcast. Today, we are thrilled to be speaking with Travis Johnson, Vice President, Legislative Affairs and Senior Counsel at IACC. He has a very unique story, starting from when he wanted to become a veterinarian, to studying law, to working at nightclubs as a side hustle. And then he realized he wanted to get into IP law, and after a few years of working at a small boutique firm in his hometown, he moved to Washington, D.C. to work at the IACC in public policy. Hi, Travis, and thank you for being with us today and joining us for this uh, podcast. Thanks for having me. So for those of you who are listening today, Travis uh, Johnson is the uh, Vice President, Legislative Affairs and Senior Counsel at the IACC. And for those of you who may not know, the IACC is the International Anti-Counterfeiting Coalition. And uh, maybe before we get started, uh, one thing I was thinking about over the weekend, because I uh, was indulging myself in a lot of foods, is would you are you on the side of pineapple on a pizza or don't put pineapple on a pizza? I am on the absolutely never put pineapple on a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> just checking. I'm sort of in that side too, just kind of don't like the flavor, but I think it's wrong somehow. Yeah, my my you know my my boss would be horrified <laughs> by the idea. Being being an Italian American, he he would. You know, I would probably be uh, in the doghouse for quite a while if I uh, ordered up a pineapple and uh, pineapple and ham or something along those lines. Okay. Well, I just want to clear that up right out the gate. So that's good. As you think about your career in the world of uh, the space we find ourselves in, is there an experience you find that's kind of funny or unusual that you tend to tell a lot of something that happened along your career? Could be in this or maybe in something else you were doing. So I guess when when I first moved to D, to DC, uh, I had a had a good friend who was a, a bartender at a at a restaurant near my apartment on Capitol Hill. So uh, uh, on occasion, I would I would stop by on my way home from work, and you know, coming straight from work as I was, I was you know, typically wearing a suit. Uh, my my friend, however, had uh, taken to uh, greeting me when I entered the bar by uh, yelling out, "Congressman, good to see you." Uh, and uh, most people would not have mistaken 29-year-old Travis as a congressman, but uh, fortunately for me, uh, some of the Capitol Hill interns weren't necessarily the best and brightest their states had to offer. So uh, you know, long story short, I, I got my, my fair share of uh, free drinks from kids who just wanted to meet a member of Congress, uh, which was a, a, good, a good way to start out my, my career in D.C. That sounds like a pretty, that's a great story. It sounds like a good side hustle too. I mean, it's a good way to, you know. Uh, there, uh, there were a fair amount of uh, free chicken wings and mozzarella sticks and things like that thrown in for the bargain. So, yeah, I, I, I ate and drank well back in those days. <laughs> that's a great story. Thanks for sharing. When you think about maybe that 29-year-old person or even before that, like, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, I, I, I wanted to be about a thousand different things, honestly. It, it probably changed by the week. I think one of the the most consistent probably, though, was, uh, you know, when I was very young, I, I was interested in becoming a veterinarian. 
you know, always had been and, and continue to be uh, very much an animal person. Uh, I used to round up stray dogs in my neighborhood and, and bring them back home and lock them up in the backyard and feed them uh, until their owners eventually uh, came looking for them. But I, I would say I'm, I'm happy with where I with where I ended up. Uh, but I do I do still do some some volunteer and fundraising work for conservation organizations and, and uh, groups of that uh, that nature. And as as many of my my friends and colleagues are aware, I, I also sponsor a special needs chimpanzee who lives in a refuge down in Florida. Uh, his his name is Knuckles, and he has uh, really fascinating. He has a cerebral palsy, but uh, but is doing well. He's twenty twenty one years old and uh, uh, is you know living living his best life down in the refuge. Very cool. And what was the pivot point to this profession? How did what caused the you to angle this direction? I, it was uh, really not till not till college that uh, I started seriously considering, uh, you know, legal career or you know anything uh, related to, to government relations. I you know had had always had an interest in in history. Uh, ended up you know majoring in political science at at the University of Florida, but mainly focusing on political philosophy and political theory. So cut to the end of my my four years of undergrad, and you know. Shockingly, there were not a lot of opportunities uh, for jobs that involved uh, sitting around and thinking about political systems. So it was uh, pretty much a no-brainer at that point uh, that I was going to either go to law school or grad school. Uh, I'd also spent a good portion of my uh, my undergrad years there, you know, working for nightclubs, doing you know promotions and flyering and event production, and uh, eventually ended up working, you know, helping you know, manage some bands and DJs. So. Uh, had gotten a little bit of exposure to uh, intellectual property uh, issues through uh, through that work. Ended up deciding to, to stick around in Gainesville for uh, another three years to to get my law degree. And uh, like many IP lawyers, I, I think I had uh, delusions of of being a a big time entertainment lawyer, you know, hitting the red carpet at the Oscars and the Grammys. And uh, unfortunately, nobody told me back then that those jobs are pretty few and far between. But uh, that was the sort of the, the first steps that set me on on the route to uh, to where I am now. Well, at least you had good background with the, you booking the the gigs and some of the nightclub stuff to uh, IP lawyer. You had a small window of opportunity. A little bit. It was uh, you know good good times, lots of fun. Yeah, exactly. So, how did you decide to sort of go from that world to how did you get here to the IACC? How did you get in this space? So I finished up law school at uh, University of Florida around the the end of 2002. At the time, uh, my you know, top priority was trying to find a job specifically in in the IP field. Uh, that was the really the the only area of law that I was interested in practicing in. Uh, was able to you know sort of luck into a, a position with a, a little boutique IP firm uh, just outside of my hometown of Jacksonville. Ended up working at that uh, firm for a couple of years, uh, doing mostly you know, trademark and copyright registration work, uh, some licensing, and uh, a little bit of arbitration. But it was uh, pretty clear from from you know the get go that that was you know not really what I wanted to spend you know the the duration of my career doing. You know, I'd you know always been more interested in the, the policy side of things. Uh, opportunity arose to. You know, joined the IACC initially in a in a contract capacity, but you know, with a, a position focused on advocacy and research and lobbying, 
so it was a, a very easy decision for me to make at the time. Uh, I got the job offer uh, in uh, November of 2005, uh, a little before Thanksgiving, and uh, you know has has turned out to be a, a great decision. You know, 15 years later, I'm I'm still here at the IACC, and you know have have enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, Wilson, we're all lucky in this industry to have you there. Uh, but maybe for those who may or may not know about the IACC, maybe share a little bit about the mission and the concept and the things the, and the good work that the IACC does in this arena. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the uh, well, I guess the the short short version uh, that uh, I like to use is you know the IACC provides a voice for rights holders. You know whether that's you know a, a unified voice to educate consumers or to you know, bring their priorities before, you know, government bodies, whether here in, in D.C. or uh, state legislatures or uh, with, you know, other governments uh, around the world. You know, we are uh, a voice for our members. Uh, you know, the, the slightly longer version uh, that uh, sort of the boilerplate that we that we tack on to you know, our official submissions and things like that is, uh, you know, we are a a uh, multi-industry association focused on education, advocacy, training, and practical solutions uh, that help businesses protect their brands and their creations. That, that Listen, both sound pretty good, right? And listen, I know from having been in the industry, uh, the good work that the IACC does on behalf, and obviously the, the legislative piece is you know always a challenge and probably will remain a challenge for quite some time, I suppose, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We, we, uh, you know, sort of the the running the running joke, I think, in the industry across, uh, you know, all of the sectors, whether it's the you know uh, the association work or the the you know law firms and investigators that we work for, or the representatives from from our member brands, is you know that uh, anti counterfeiting and brand protection work is uh, comes with it uh, quite quite a bit of job security because. It's it's a huge task, and and you know there's you know a, a constant need to uh, adapt. The the you know counterfeiters themselves are very adaptable and are constantly coming up with uh, you know new approaches and new ways to rip off the the real creators. So uh, you know it's always going to be incumbent upon us and uh, all of our partners to uh, continue to to rise to the occasion, and it's something we have to we have to commit to for the long haul. Yeah, clearly a marathon, not a sprint, for sure, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you think about your 16-year experience there at the IACC. Is there something that strikes you as one of the more difficult things you've had to do uh, in your role uh, that's been a challenge or something that you re- recollect as a challenging piece? I'm not sure that it's you know necessarily the, the, the hardest thing I've, I've had to do here, but Probably the most intense or nerve-wracking sort of thing would be you know, congressional testimony. You know, I've I've testified before House Committee, and uh, we've had other staff. Uh, you know, our president uh, testified a couple of times uh, before Congress, as well as you know a few members that we've uh, that have you know testified independently that uh, we've we've helped uh, to do some prep work with. And you know those those opportunities don't arise very frequently, but they can be hugely impactful. Uh, you know, it's not often that you get you know that much undivided attention from you know the the folks who can make or break policy on on your priority issues. And uh, unfortunately, you also often don't get a whole lot of lead time in advance of that invitation to to testify. So uh, it's 
uh, a bit of a slog to draft testimony that's clear and concise and persuasive in addition to you know making sure that you or you know the the individual testifying is prepared for every question that they might possibly be asked by you know any member of the committee so it's uh, can be can be a bit of a grueling process uh can be a, a bit a bit adversarial at times uh and of course it's it's a very public thing so you know if you happen to put your foot in your mouth you know, there's a good chance a whole lot of people are going to see it uh so yeah definitely it definitely gets the uh, the adrenaline pumping you know whether whether you're the one there uh you know at the witness table or or you're you know sitting a couple of rows back in the in the gallery it's very challenging and uh you know very uh very nerve-wracking but also can be also can be very rewarding yeah i, I would imagine and listen sometimes you probably have less than 24 hours to prepare and sometimes probably feel like it could be career ending or career launching so in your experience and and your you know constant communication with with rights owners and big brands and you know even platforms what's your thought as you sort of step back and look at it 30,000 feet like what do you see the challenges in the online offline how are things going to sort of pan out at least from your perspective i mean you know e-commerce is growing at an enormous rate you know, we still hope and pray that brick and mortar come back and people start to shop in a normal fashion. But how do you think it all sort of connects? It's probably the single biggest issue that we're dealing with uh, the past few years. We've seen this sort of, I don't even think it's fair to call it an, an evolution of the way that counterfeits are, are you know, distributed and sold. Uh, you know, it's, you know, absolutely been a, been a revolution. The ability of counterfeiters to sort of bypass the traditional middlemen uh, to bring their goods you know directly to consumers has presented challenges you know both for the rights holders in terms of enforcement and also for you know, our, our partners in you know law enforcement and customs you know the the literally you know millions of small packages uh, that are passing through you know international mail centers and express shipping hubs. Uh, has just been overwhelming for the the resources that are available. You know, obviously you can't open up and inspect every single package that comes through. Uh, so it's you know certainly a situation where where we've got to come up with you know more efficient and effective uh, ways of of dealing with just this you know massive volume of traffic. Uh, you know, we've done a lot of work over the past few years with uh, you know CBP to come up with uh, you know, more streamlined processes to come you know to you know provide some uh, additional uh, expanded authority for you know our public sector partners to be able to cooperate uh, more closely with with the private sector it's it's you know absolutely something that that has to be met jointly you know sort of you know side by side shoulder to shoulder between the the public and private sector uh, and not just from the rights holder standpoint uh, you know, I think you know one of the things that we've uh, you know, really focused on, you know, here at the IACC the past few years is, you know, sort of building bridges to partners who we, you know, may have not traditionally worked with, whether that's, you know, in the payment sector, the, you know, e-commerce sector, you know, the shipping inter- intermediaries and, and folks like that. It's a, you know, a huge challenge and, and it really is going to require, you know, the, the, the efforts of every single stakeholder uh, within within the ecosystem. Yeah. And I think about it all the time in terms of, you know, it almost seems 
probably not monthly, but sometimes it feels monthly, that there's a new marketplace. The the challenge is the expansiveness, right, of this, what we call e-commerce. Whatever you thought it was yesterday, it's bigger than that today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. One of the um, things I think about when I think about you lawyers, and I mean, I don't mean it in a negative way, right? <laughs> I think about is, is there a myth that we are supposed to sort of like debunk about you legislative or IP lawyers, we sort of stick you in a bucket and, and you know, what's the common thing we miss as outsiders? The biggest myth or the uh, misconception that, that most people, you know, have, whether in terms of uh, traditional lawyers or, uh, you know, the more policy focused, you know, lobbyists, uh, you know, such as myself, tend to be driven by, by what they see on TV or in the movies, uh, Law and Orders or the West Wings, uh, you know. Uh, they make for a good story, but they don't necessarily paint an accurate uh, portrait of of the day to day work that uh, you know most of us do. It's uh, far more mundane on on a day to day basis. It's uh, sitting in front of computer, uh, sitting in front of a computer, doing a lot of reading, doing a lot of writing, you know, doing a lot of research. But uh, but at the end of the day, it's you know that's the 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 mundane stuff is what makes the 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 incredibly beneficial things uh, actually capable of happening in the first place. Right, it's what turns the flywheel and makes things happen for sure. Right. Uh, I thought you might bring up the the chimpanzee as a uh, as a as a mythbuster, but we already heard about that. But that's good, right? <laughs> uh, when we were doing the podcast just before yours, we were speaking to Andreas Urbach from Husqvarna. And he had asked a question that he wanted you to answer. And his question to you was, what advice would you give yourself at age 15 if you could go back in time? That is an excellent question. I, I, would, I would certainly say I don't have any or, or many regrets in, in the way that you know, my, my, my life and career has evolved. I think 15-year-old me had his head on straight, uh, you know, fairly well uh, to begin with. But I, I think uh, maybe one one bit of advice I would give myself is uh, don't procrastinate quite so much. Uh, it's uh, it's it's probably the the one bad habit that I, I still am, am unable to shake. Sometimes, uh, you know, so frequently it's things that will literally take me five minutes to get done once I actually sit down and make myself do them. Uh, over the past few years, gotten much better about, you know, sort of making myself a, a daily agenda and a calendaring things, uh, a little further in advance. And, and yeah, I think I would, uh, tell 15 year old me to take 10 minutes at the beginning of the day and plot out your time. The more efficiently you use your time, the more free time you're going to have to, you know, relax and have fun anyway. So makes a lot of sense. And then, um, what advice do you think you'd give uh, young people if you were talking to a uh, you know kid out of college, a kid in high school who's thinking that this public policy legislation of legislative affairs is a um, a career path? What would you tell them? The number one thing I would tell, and and it, you know I think applies more broadly, not just to you know legal or or policy careers. Learn to write. You know, learning to learning to communicate clearly, effectively. Particularly in writing, you know, I I still struggle. You know, have probably heard it in the, uh, you know, in the in the podcast here. I, I tend to uh and um and 
I'm not always the most focused of uh, of of speakers. Uh, I tend to to ramble a little bit, but learning to write effectively, clearly, concisely, and persuasively uh, will go so far, no matter what your career is. Particularly in, in you know, will will go go particularly far in. Uh, you know the the advocacy fields, but I think is is something that uh, just about everybody uh, should spend a little more time on. Yeah, I think you're 100 percent right. We see it all over the place, and I and I sometimes uh, I fall victim to not paying attention to what I've written as clearly as I should be as well. So great advice. Um, is there anyone in your career that sort of inspired you or mentored you who sort of comes to mind when you think about how you got where you got? Uh, well, it's probably gonna, you know, sound, sound a little cliched, but, you know, my, my parents have both just retired, uh, about two weeks ago. Yeah. They, they both, for as long as I can remember, have been, uh, the, the model for, you know, how I govern myself at work and, and in my career. You know, my, you know, you know, some of my earliest memories are, you know, my dad taking me into the office with him, you know, on a on a Saturday or Sunday to, uh, you know, catch up on work that he needed to get done. Uh, you know, he was always, you know, very very hard worker, very dedicated. You know, my mom, you know, had uh, had taken a few years off, but uh, you know, went back to uh, went back to work. You know, up until her very last day, you know, on the job, she was putting in, putting in the effort. You know, working overtime when she had to, and and not complaining about it. You know, I I think has has set me up to be successful in my career. Very nice. Listen, I'm sure your mom and dad are super proud of you. And, and as we wrap up after your podcast, Travis, we are going to be interviewing and discussing. Uh, similar questions with Marion Wozner from the Belron Group, which is in Europe, it's called Carglass. In the U.S., it's Safe Light Auto, but uh, obviously a huge, huge company. What would you like to ask Marion? I would say, you know, Marion, what uh, what their favorite time of day is, and and uh, you know when they when they feel the most productive. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Travis. Thank you for your time today. It was a pleasure to get to meet with you. All right. Excellent. I appreciate it. Well, Travis, it was very interesting to learn about your journey and your insights and tips with regards to the brand protection space. I have a few takeaways that really resonated with me, and I want to share them with you. Number one, the way counterfeits are distributed and sold is a revolution. The ability of counterfeiters to bypass the traditional middleman to bring goods directly to consumers. Number two, being a lawyer is not as glamorous as it may look in TV shows and movies. And three, the best thing that you can do is to learn to write effectively and persuasively. Communication is power. Well, that's it for us today. If you like what you heard, check out our next inspiring story from another hero of brand protection. You can follow us on all our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, as well as Twitter and LinkedIn. Make it a good day. 